Good morning, church. Uh, unfortunately, I am here again to speak for you because Jeff is still not feeling well, so we're giving him the time to, to rest um, that he so desperately needs. Uh, but we are here, and we are going to open God's Word, and, and again, we're going to keep our series on Colossians on hold until Jeff returns. And, and today, we're just going to look at another psalm, similar to what we did last week. And, and today we're going to look at Psalm 87. If you have it, please, please look at it. If you don't, maybe you can grab uh, a Bible or look it at your phone, or if you have the bulletin, you can turn to it as well, because we're going to read it in a moment. But I just wanted to mention that, that one goal this week is, is that I wanted to come up with a passage that was so wholesome and encouraging. I looked and I thought back through the past couple of months, and I, and I feel like going through the book of, of Micah and, and even the, the psalm we looked at last week, it, it was pretty rough and weighty. Um, and, and it's important to really dive into our hurt, our pain, and our desperate need that we have in God and cry out to Him and humble our lives in the eyes of our Heavenly Father. That is important. But I must tell you that over the past few months, I kind of just needed to chill. I needed a palate cleanser. I needed something simple, something, something beautiful, something that really seeps into my soul and restores it. And that's what we have this week. I asked a few of my buddies, what is a passage that, that really helps them in these times? And they both said Psalm 87. So I looked at it, and, and I remember on Monday, after I read it on Monday, I couldn't sleep that night just because I was so excited for what was said in this psalm. And we're going to go through that. So, so hopefully you can gain from the psalm. Hopefully it can restore your soul. Hopefully it can just brighten your day. Because there's nothing fancy about it. It's an easy fastball just right over the plate. So let's just rest in these words. Psalm 87. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion. More than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God, Selah. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philista and Tyre and Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples. This one was born there. Selah. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its beauty. Thank you for this psalm and this passage. We ask that in this time you open up our hearts and our minds that, that we can truly see your beautiful work unfold before us in our lives and that we can beautifully see the hope that you have provided for all eternity, for your people, God. I want to give you all the praise, all the honor, all the glory for you, the only one worthy of it. Amen. What do you think of when you hear the phrase, the most magical place on earth? Maybe you have something that comes to mind, or maybe you've been brainwashed by Disney, because that is exactly what you should think of. The most magical place on earth refers to Disney World. And maybe because I was born in Florida and lived in Florida for a long time, and they would revoke the fact that I lived in Florida if I didn't say Disney World was the most magical place on earth. 
But growing up for me, it was. It was the land filled with the, the characters of my childhood. And also it was filled with $13 bottles of water and $20 turkey legs. But growing up, we had annual passes. And it was really cool to be in Florida and have annual passes because we could go all the time. And we would make multiple trips over the year going to all of the parks. But eventually, my parents realized that we were growing up. Mickey Mouse wasn't going to cut it anymore. So we graduated. We leveled up, if you will. And, and we started going to Busch Gardens and SeaWorld because Busch Gardens had more roller coasters and thrill rides that we wanted to ride. But eventually, my parents realized that, that there had to be something better. So we graduated. We leveled up once again. And we got passes to Islands of Adventure and Universal Studios. And those parks to this day are my favorite theme parks. They had the best roller coasters, the best thrill rides, as well as rides involving the things that I really loved growing up, especially Back to the Future. And when they shut that ride down and made it a Simpsons ride, a little part of me died. But see, we, we found this theme park, and we kind of peaked. We, we found the best theme park, and we went all the time. But then my parents wanted to go the extra mile, so we started staying at the Hard Rock Hotel on the premise of those parks. And for me, that was huge. They had so much rock history there. We could go and we could see uh, drums played by John Bonham. We could see Jimi Hendrix's guitar. We could see all these great legends of rock. But the best part about staying at these hotels that are on the premise is that our key cards worked as fast passes. That means we could skip all the lines and there were no limitations on it. So I could legitimately get up walk, ride the Incredible Hulk roller coaster five times in a row in the matter of 30 minutes while other people were waiting for an hour to ride it once. I could go back, take a nap, come back and do the same thing. That is the most magical place on earth for me growing up. It was beautiful. It was perfect. It was everything I wanted my theme park experience to be. So with all that said, there's probably a place you can think of that's the greatest or the most magical place to be. Even if it's as weird as some place like, I don't know, a Build-A-Bear. But there's a place in your life that holds special meaning that you think is the greatest or the most magical place. I think our passage here is giving us a glimpse of what it will be, without a doubt. What will be the most magical place on earth? Because in our passage, we get a glimpse of the glory of God. The glory of his coming city that will stand for all eternity. Where Christ will reign with all dominion over all things on heaven and below. In our passage we see that this glorious place is not some secret place in a specific geographical location. In our passage we see that this glorious place is not some far out concept that, that we cannot even grasp. Because this glorious place is intimate and personal. So let's look at our passage and let's see these things. First, let's see of this glorious place and what this city will be like. Let's see God's city and its glory. Verses 1 through 3 again. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Reading this, maybe you started to piece together some things. Maybe you try to think through the logistics of what the city looks like. Are there golden walls? Are there golden gates? 
the original audience was probably envisioning this mighty fortress on, on top of a, a hill or a mountain, one that is a perfect place for defense, a perfect impenetrable structure, one that would symbolize strength and power. And that fortress would stand forever, never crumbling, never needing a new coat of paint. It was always there, constant and sure. One commentator says this about the author and where the author is coming from for the psalm. It says, the poet, without doubt here, refers to the words of, promise, of the promise concerning the eternal continuance and future glory of Jerusalem. Glorious things are spoken in reference to thee, O thou city of God, city of his choice and his love. God has promised that there's going to be this coming glory in the form of eternity. An eternity of peace. An eternity where God's power will never be matched. No more would God's people have to worry about an outside force coming in and invading and destroying God's land or God's people, exiling its inhabitants. So the thought of an eternal city was such a huge desire for God's people. These ones were often hurt and wounded. They became exiles, they became sojourners. They, they desperately needed a home. And God promises them an eternal place of peace. And the best way that they can envision that is a well-fortified and powerful city. <clears throat> now, we don't know exactly what this city will look like. We have a lot of prophecy that says what's this, what this new earth is going to be like. But we don't exactly know until we get there. We don't know what the, the walls or the gates will be made up of, truly. But we do have some context there, even some context that the author in the psalm may not have, because we have the rest of scriptures, right? We have passages that we read earlier, like Daniel 7, where God is saying he's going to establish an everlasting kingdom that will never be destroyed, it will never end. But we also see the glory of his kingdom, it's not primarily resting in brick and mortar. It's resting on what, or should I say, it's resting on whom? It's resting on Jesus Christ, the perfect one. The city will be glorious, not because of the physical location or structures made in it. It's glorious because of who made it and who is reigning in it. This means that it's not just a place within walls. We know that Christ will rule over everything. He will see to it that all things are in a perfect place of peace. Not because of what we did to earn it, but because of what Christ was willing to do to secure shalom for his people. Our eternal home, this grand city, this new creation, the new world, it's going to be free from sin. It's going to be glorious because of the one who created it and because his domain is eternal and glorious. God the Father, the Son, the Spirit is glory, is majesty, is compassion, is powerful, is perfect. The glorious nature of eternity rests on God being glorious. It's a beautiful idea that we might not even be able to wrap our minds around because it's so good. And I can't wait for the day where we all get to celebrate in our Father's kingdom together. But wait, there's more. It gets even more wholesome than that. I don't know if you follow pop culture a lot, but the past few years, there's grown a newfound love for the actor Keanu Reeves. And in the, if you ask the internet, Keanu Reeves is wholesome personified. A couple of years ago, he made a surprise entrance at a video game conference. And sorry if I lost anybody, but please stick with me. 
So he came out to this event, and before he got to his talking points, somebody in the front row said, you're breathtaking. His immediate response was, no. He looked the guy right in the eyes, pointed to him, says, you're breathtaking. And then he immediately followed that, said, you're all breathtaking. It's so wholesome, makes you warm and fuzzy, just thinking about it. Now, combining that with what I previously talked about, we should look forward to this glorious city, one that is glorious because of he who created it. By nature of the glorious God creating an eternal home for his people, and Christ, the one reigning in it, makes that home, it makes that city glorious because that is what happens when God works. That's what happens when God pours himself out into his work. So if God is glorious, if God is powerful, if God is compassionate, caring, and loving, and he puts that into his creation, what does that mean about us? We are created by God. We are created in his image to reflect his attributes. So that means we are glorious. We are majestic. We are powerful. We are loving. We are caring. Because of the one who perfectly captures those attributes has made us to reflect his image. So if you're ever down on yourself, know that you are breathtaking. We all are breathtaking image bearers of God. How beautiful is that? But guess what? There is more. Because this call to join him in his glorious city that he has prepared is a wide call. The call to join him is wide. Verse 4. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia, Tyre, and Cush. This one was born there, they say. This might not mean much to you right now. But I think if you have some context, you'll see some beauty here. What's being said here? Simply put, it's saying that these locations, there are some citizens in these places that are going to be called to join God in his glorious city the glorious city that he will create and sustain. But what's important about these specific places? Why were these places named? First, Rahab. Rahab means arrogant one in Hebrew. And this here, in this context, is referring to Egypt, right? The oppressors of God's people for so long. But eventually, someday, there's going to be some of Egypt's citizens that would recognize God's call and would turn and bow to God. Second, Babylon. Babylon represents confusion and pain for God's people. There clearly have been enemies of God. Yet still, God promises to call citizens of Babylon to wake up, see the light, and turn to God. Third, another major threat, an enemy to God's people, Philistia. God's call calls them and some of their citizens that they would turn and they would make peace with God. Fourth, the city of Tyre. Tyre is described as the embodiment of jealousy and greed. But still, someday they would turn towards God. And they would accept his call. They would change their ways and seek God above all else. And finally, Cush. Or if you want to think of it as Ethiopia, if that gives you a better sense of location. It's represented as the most remote and spiritually illiterate nation that the world knew at the time. But God's good news, God's call will eventually come to them and set them free. Do you see the beauty in that verse now? We see God working. We see God changing lives, calling people from across the world to come to him. 
in that call, we see God inviting people from different socioeconomical backgrounds, different countries. We see enemies of God coming to God. We see those from far and wide receive the invite to share in God's glorious city. There is a worldwide mission to call people to God's glorious city. The Father calls them from all over the world. The Spirit leads the, his people into this glorious city established by God and secured because of Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And then you have this phrase, this one will be born there. What are they saying? It's going to come up later in our psalm as well. This is showing that the individuals here, these people, their citizenship is in God's kingdom, not their earthly kingdom. And it's not some limited time visa. God's people from across, across the globe will be citizens of God's glorious city. Everyone from all over the globe who have been called by God will be equal in all aspects, including citizenship. And to get a little bit real here, I'm going to challenge you just a little bit. I know I said I'm trying to make it really wholesome, but there is a challenge here. I don't want to get too weighty, but when you think about the idea of resting in your eternal citizenship, where are you at? Comparing that to where you are resting yourself in your earthly citizenship. Our nation, I know there, there's, there's people in, in the church that might struggle with this. Our nation America, however great you think it is, it's just an earthly nation. It's not perfect. It's led by humans who are not perfect. But sometimes I see people in the church who equate their earthly citizenship with their eternal citizenship, secured for them by the works of Jesus Christ. So I'm saying you, you can be proud to be an American. You can sing that song. You can root for our nation in the Olympics. You can want what's best for our nation. You can help make it better. But please do not ever equate your love and pride for America with the love and pride you have in God's kingdom. God forbid anything happen to completely lead America to crumble as a nation. But if you look at history, and if you're a fan of Hamilton, you know that oceans rise and empires fall. So instead, place your hope and our citizenship in God's kingdom, because that will never fade, that will never fail. Tough part over, challenge over. Back to the beautiful stuff. We learned about God's glorious city. We learned that he has called individuals to come to him from all over the globe. His call is wide. Now hopefully you can say, wow, Tyler, no way, it can get better than that. But guess what? There is more. Verses 5 and 6 show us that because, the, because God's so glorious, his call is also personal. 5 and 6. And of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples. This one was born there. Not only does God call his people from all over the world, he also calls them in a personal way. God will look at his people. He says, you are mine. You are born here in my kingdom. You belong here with me. You are my people. I am your God. It says the Lord records and registers his people. God is working. He knows his people personally. He keeps us and he keeps track of us. 
He does not give that responsibility to some clerk down in the basement of Zion because that's something I just made up. God calls us, each and every one of us, by name. Our God is not so distant that we cannot meet him. He has handpicked his people. He sees them through. Remember what God said to Jeremiah when he called Jeremiah to become a prophet for him. He says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. God knows you. He formed you. God says, Tyler, you are born in my kingdom. Nothing will take that away. And it's not some lottery, a wheel spins, and a name pops out. He knows who his people are. He calls them by name. His people will come to him led by the Spirit. Isaiah 43 says, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. God's call is personal. He cannot wait for us to be part of his glorious city. If you don't know why it's important for it to be personal, maybe you've had this experience growing up. I know growing up, whenever I had a big celebration, a birthday, graduation, or even when I was married, my dad made sure that I wrote thank you cards. And those thank you cards had to be personal, right? Each of them. Grandma, thanks for the new shoes. I can't wait to wear them to school and show off to my friends. Or thank you for celebrating our wedding with us. Thank you for the blender. Parker and I are going to love using it. It's personal. They're thought out. And yes, maybe after writing a bunch of them, your hands cramp up. But it's still reaching out with effort and attention to the individuals who gave you something. How would you react to receiving a, just a generic thank you card? What if it read, thanks for being there, I guess. Or thanks for the gift you gave us without mentioning the gift. Or just thanks. What if you didn't even address it to a specific person? You probably would receive that and read it and be like, what's the point? Maybe you're insulted by it. Maybe you laugh at it. But it's the personal touch there that means everything. It shows care. It shows love. And this is what God shows us. He personally knows us and calls us to come to him, to celebrate in his glorious city with others that he has called from all walks of light, all parts of the globe. God's call is wide, but also it's personal because he cares for each one of his people. He loves them each equally and is excited for them to come and become a citizen of Zion a citizen of an unfailing eternal kingdom. Now, it's kind of funny when I think back about all those times I've gone to theme parks and, and spent great weekends there, all the countless times I spent riding rides over and over again, visiting the most exciting places a child could dream of. But eventually what happens? Eventually I got tired. I got bored. I had the mindset, I've been there, done that. The most magical place on earth, while it may not even exist yet for us here, but it's where we as believers in Christ are heading. We will never grow tired of it. And when we get there, what will we do? What will our response be? Verse 7, singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. The phrase singers 
and dancers alike is so striking to me in this song. Because when we get there, when we walk into this glorious city that God has built, filled with all of his people that we are personally invited to, we will party. We won't be able to contain our excitement in our bodies. We will dance. We will sing. We will gather all tribes and tongues. We will sing praises to God. We will praise the one who has created all things and made us glorious. We will praise the one who made this glorious city and establish it to rule for all eternity. We will worship Christ, our Redeemer and King. We will be filled with the Spirit for all eternity. We will feast and sing together. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your beauty. We thank you for your word. We thank you for calling us personally by name. You know us, God. We thank you that you look at your creation and you call all of your people from across the globe to you, God. You call us to rest in you and the glorious eternity you have secured for us through Christ. We want to give you all the praise, all the honor, all the glory for the only one worthy of it. Amen. Now we do come to a point in our service where, where we confess, right? It's, it's not all sunshine and rainbows because what we have to do to accept this call is to realize that, that we are broken, that we needed God to save us. We needed God to know us. We needed God to pick us and call us. And we needed God to save us from ourselves. And he does that by sending Christ to live a life we should have lived, to die a death we should have died. And then he rose Christ from the grave, conquering death, so we in turn can conquer death. And all we have to do is just confess, say, God, I desperately need you. So we come to you now, God, and we, we confess together. Our confession could be found in your bulletin. If you can, please pray it along with me. Our confession is this. We are not worthy, Lord and Master, that you should come under the roof of our souls. Nevertheless, since you desire to dwell with us, we make bold to draw near. You bid us open the door which you alone have made, that entering therein you may bring light into our darkened minds. We do believe that you will do so. For you did not reject the cruel tax collector when he repented, nor cast out the robber when he confessed your kingdom. But you count all who come to you in penitence among the number of your children. O Lord, who alone is blessed now and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Take a moment to privately confess your sins to our God. Dear God, we come to you on our knees. Humbly we bow down to you, God. We ask that, that you hear our cries for help and rescue, God. We ask that you work in us, lead us by your spirit to accept your call in our lives. 
And we ask that you continually point us towards the future hope we have in your glorious city. Amen. Hear these words as an assurance. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Let's continue to worship together.